please stand for the reading from God's word. This is from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. I don't need the microphone quite so high when I come up. <clears throat> Let's pray as we look together at God's word. Lord, I do thank you for your grace as we open your word this morning, and uh, we pray that you'd be with us. We pray that what we just read about would be true of us in that your spirit would be present making your son known. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of introduction, this is Austin Baton who read scripture for us this morning. Austin is doing an internship with us here at Westgate for the next few months. You'll get to hear a little bit more about him next week as he shares his story with you, but uh, be sure to say hello and welcome to Austin when you get a chance. But, so Acts chapter 2. When I was in high school, um, I was probably 16 or 17, and I was driving my 1986 Buick Skylark. It was pretty sweet. Um, actually, there's a lot of stories one could tell about that that are not germane to the sermon, but there's one story that is, and uh, there was a day, I think I was heading home from the grocery store or something like that, and I pulled up to the one stoplight in town which may have actually still been a stop sign at that point. I don't quite remember. But what I do remember is that when I went to pull out, my car stalled. It just wouldn't go, and, which was incredibly frustrating. But as I'm frustrated about that at that moment, I look up, and a car comes flying through the intersection. Had I been able to pull out, I would have been flattened like a pancake. And I remember thinking at that moment, you know, what just happened? And, and even discussing later with some friends, what does this mean? Like, this was like near miracle stuff. What does, the, what does that mean? Is there, is there some sort of meaning behind that moment? And I think it's pretty common for people, whenever something unexpected or out of the ordinary happens, to look for meaning in that event. Uh, sometimes it's just superstition. You know, you knock over the salt shaker or you see a black cat or whatever, and people have imposed meaning onto otherwise ordinary events. Sometimes it's us trying to kind of make sense of coincidences. But sometimes it's truly something out of the ordinary, amazing, uh, seemingly miraculous. And when we encounter something like that, we want to know what does it mean? 
What does it mean? And that's the very question that the crowds who were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, uh, when their attention was drawn to this strange occurrence. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing these people speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What is the significance of Pentecost? What do we make of this strange yet foundational event in the history of the church? How does it relate to the church's purpose that we looked at last week, our charter to bear witness to Christ? What do we learn about the Holy Spirit here? What does this mean? That's the question that we're going to consider this morning as we continue our series in the book of Acts. In the opening passage that we looked at last week, one of the last things that Jesus said uh, to his apostles before ascending to heaven was to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he gave them this charge, this mission to bear witness to him, but he said, don't go do it yet. Stay in Jerusalem and wait until you've received power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So in order to carry out their purpose, the church needs supernatural power, power of the Holy Spirit. And and as we get to chapter 2 this morning, we realize they did not have to wait very long for God to answer that promise, to pour out His Spirit upon His people. In the meantime, the end of chapter 1, they identified a replacement for Judas. They filled out the number of 12 apostles. Uh, and, and now, just 10 days after Christ ascended, the whole group of believers, about 120 people, are gathered in one place in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was an Old Covenant feast. When we hear the word Pentecost, if you've grown up in the church at least, you probably think of this event or this chapter. That's what Pentecost means. But Pentecost is an Old Covenant festival or feast. In the Old Testament, it was known as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks because it took place seven weeks uh, or 50 days after Passover. Pentecost means 50th. And so that, and that's when the grain harvest would begin. And so, beginning at um, right after Passover. And so, this was one of the three annual feasts that God's people were commanded to gather in His presence for, which meant in Jesus's day going to Jerusalem, where the temple was. And it's here during this feast when Jews from every nation in the known world were gathered in Jerusalem, whether visiting there or living there, that God chose to pour out His Holy Spirit upon the church. And that event, this incredible, foundational, pivotal event, is described in just three verses. First, God's people hear something, what sounds like a mighty rushing wind. Being from Nebraska, it makes me think of a tornado, like a freight train sound or something like that. Now, it's not a wind, 
It's not just a natural occurrence. There's something supernatural happening there. It sounds like a great wind, and it certainly gets their attention. So they hear something, then they see something. Again, something that looks like a natural-ish thing, fire, natural phenomenon, but it's occurring in a very supernatural way. It's appearing above each of their heads like this little divided tongue flickering there. And then, third, they say something. Again, language is a pretty normal thing, but there's something supernatural about what they're saying because now they're speaking in languages they haven't actually learned. Um, It's this miraculous event. The summary, as verse 4 puts it, is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, all of these things are quite remarkable, what they saw, heard, and said, but it's what they say that actually draws the most attention. So in verses 5 to 13, there's this massive crowd that gathers around because of what they heard. At this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? That's not a normal occurrence to walk in being from you know, somewhere else and hear someone who doesn't know your language talking to you fluently. Uh, the hearers want to know, what does this mean? What does this mean? And, and there's a sense in which we can join them in that question, right? Uh, not just in terms of the meaning of this event, but the meaning and significance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, many consider the Holy Spirit to be the least understood member of the Trinity. So the Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in some Christian traditions, people might be tempted to question whether the Holy Spirit exists because you never hear about Him. Nobody seems to really need Him. Uh, one author puts it, uh, describes him as the forgotten God. But of course, there are other traditions, one might conclude that the Holy Spirit is the star of the show. He gets all of the attention such that, that Jesus ends up taking a functional back seat to the faith uh, which bears his name. Now, we're not going to do an exhaustive theology on the Holy Spirit this morning. You can rest assured Uh, The best resource I can point you to if you want to do something like that would be J.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit. Uh, But I think we can get a pretty good window into the heart of the Holy Spirit's ministry and what that means for the church when we understand the heart of the Spirit's activity at Pentecost. Because while this is not the first time that we meet or read about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Jesus talked a lot about the Spirit. The entire Old Testament, the Spirit is present and active. He is eternally existent. He shows up in the very second verse of the Bible when the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So so there's nothing new in terms of the Spirit's existence or activity, but there is something new and unique and quite foundational happening here in that this is the introduction of the Spirit's new covenant ministry, his new covenant ministry. And as Jesus himself said right before his ascension, this is essential to the purpose and life of the church. So I do think we get a a unique window 
into the Spirit's ministry by understanding his activity here in the Pentecost event. And so what does this event mean? Well, we can say a few things uh, based simply on paying attention to the subtle ways that Luke describes the event. Uh, It's clear back from chapter 1 that we know it has something to do with God's power for the church, right? That was Jesus' instructions. Wait till you receive power. You've got a mission, but you need power. So we know that Pentecost has something to do with the Spirit's power, God's power for the church. Second, we know it has something to do with God's presence in the church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us. And that language of filling is language of God's presence from the Old Testament. In fact, both the imagery of the tongues of fire and the language of filling both point us back to the temple and tabernacle passages in the Old Testament. The temple was the place where God made his special presence among his people on earth, and he filled it with his glory, often marked by the pillar of cloud and of fire above it. And so at Pentecost, from the way Luke describes it, we have this subtle indication that the church is becoming the new temple. It is the dwelling place of Christ on earth and the display of his glory. We also know that it has something to do with God making himself known to the nations. Uh, Now again, those who are gathered around were all Jews. We were told that in verse 5, but But notice that that they weren't not all natives to Judea or Jerusalem. They were gathered, as he puts it, from every nation under heaven, every nation in the known world. There is an international scope that's breaking into the picture, and you're going to see that unfold through the book of Acts. In fact, uh, Pentecost has long been understood to be the undoing of the Tower of Babel. Uh, If you think about what happened in the Tower of Babel, the, the languages were confused. The nations were divided. Uh, in fact, uh, in Genesis 10, right before the Tower of Babel, you have what's often called the Table of Nations. It's this description of all the different people groups on earth and how they were descended from Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And it's those people that then gathered in Genesis 11 to build this tower uh, when God came down and confused their languages so they couldn't understand each, each other. What's interesting is that when Luke lists the nations that are hearing the works of God in their own language, he includes representatives from each section of that table in Genesis 10. You can trace back to the Tower of Babel. There's an intentional undoing of that confusion. John Stott summarizes it this way. He says, at Babel, human languages were confused and nations scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ. So so we can tell just by the way Luke describes the events that the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church has something to do with God's power, with God's presence, and with God's plan for the nations. That's just from the event. But we don't just have Luke's description of the event. We actually have Peter's answer to the question, what does this mean? That's what he does in the rest of the chapter, verses 14 to 41. 
he answers that question, what does this mean? And what's interesting is that when Peter answers the question, he doesn't do that by giving us a lesson on the Holy Spirit, but rather by declaring the authority and glory of Jesus. That's what Pentecost means, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And that's what we see as we look at Peter's sermon. Now, the fact that Peter stands up and says anything at all is itself evidence that this is God's power for the church. Just 10 days ago, he was having trouble understanding uh, the resurrection and its significance. And just a few weeks ago, he was hiding for his life, pretending like he'd never met Jesus. So something has obviously changed at this moment that he stands up to publicly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the power of the Spirit at work. But it's not just Peter's words that bear witness to Jesus. The very Pentecost event itself bears witness to the authority and glory of Jesus. Uh, some of you uh, probably, well, I know some of you travel for work on occasion, and, and sometimes I have to do that as well, whether I go out of town for training or for a conference or something like that. And it's not uncommon that when I finally get home from the trip, uh, it's a little bit after our littlest kids have already gone to bed. But when they wake up in the morning and run out to the family room, before they even see me, they can tell that I'm home. They see my shoes by the door or my backpack sitting by the couch. There are signs that I'm finally home. Well, according to Peter, Pentecost functions in a similar way. It's a sign that God's promised Messiah has arrived. It's evidence, even if you don't see him, that he's now here. And that Messiah, they want the crowds to know, is Jesus of Nazareth. And so in verses 14 to 21, Peter explains the sign. After uh, correcting the scoffers who accuse the, the scene of just, you know, a little too much booze in the morning, Peter explains that's not what's going on, he, that there's a prophetic basis for what, they are heard, what they're hearing, and he does that by citing the Old Testament prophet Joel. So uh, he cites Joel 2, 28 to 32. He says this in, in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That, Peter says, is what you just saw happen. God fulfilling his promise to Joel the pouring out of his spirit, the, all of those languages that you were hearing them declare God's mighty works in your own language, that was God's people prophesying as a result of him pouring out his spirit. And then he continues from Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, 
uh, whether we understand, uh, whether we're supposed to understand that description there as kind of literal cosmic disruptions, which is what began to happen uh, on Good Friday, the, the sun turning to darkness that happened during the crucifixion, and, and Jesus foretold that other things like that will happen before the end. So whether it's like this literal cosmic disruption or whether it's kind of a metaphorical description of the convulsions of history, which is also how that apocalyptic language gets used in the Old Testament sometimes, you know, what to make of the precise signs, regardless of that, Peter's point is clear, that the last days that Joel spoke about are here, that those last days have begun, they have been inaugurated. The future age when God promised to make all things new, to redeem his people and establish his kingdom, that is here, and the proof is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But if that's true, if these are signs that the last days have begun, have been inaugurated, then that means someone is here. Because according to the Old Testament, the pouring out of the Spirit and the prophesying of God's people, those are the shoes by the door. Those are the backpack by the couch. Those are the evidence that someone has arrived. That someone being God's promised anointed king. And so the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, it it doesn't just give the church power to preach of Jesus. It is itself evidence that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And that's the point Peter makes in his sermon in verses 22 to 36, when he explains, like, here's the sign, now let me tell you what the sign means. It points us to Jesus. And he starts by reviewing Jesus' life. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, so you know how Jesus lived among you, you know what kind of person he was, how God was at work within him, you know about his life, and then he reviews his death, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you know, not only of his life, you know about his death because you oversaw it, even though it was God's plan that he would die. And then he tells them about the resurrection. And that's where he spends most of his time here. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Again, Peter appeals to the Old Testament as he uh, preaches the resurrection. He goes back to Psalm 16, which was one of David's psalms, where David kind of uh, rejoiced in God's promise that his Holy One, his anointed one, would not see decay, that God would keep one of his descendants on the throne forever. And, and Peter points out the fact that, that David was speaking beyond himself. He wasn't just talking about escaping death himself because guess what? David didn't escape death. He's in the grave and his bones are still here to this day. But he was speaking prophetically. He was looking forward to his descendant, Jesus, who could not be held by death because he wasn't guilty. Death had no jurisdiction to keep him in its prison because Jesus was innocent of sin. And so it had to let him out. He overcame 
and conquered death. This Jesus God raised up, Peter says, and of that we are all witnesses. And then in verse 33, Peter connects the dots between Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the Pentecost event that everyone just witnessed. Look what he says. Being exalted, therefore, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is the source of Pentecost. He's the one who sends the Spirit on the church. And the pouring out of the Spirit is evidence that the Messiah is here. The Messiah, Peter reminds them, that y'all just crucified. The king you were waiting for, you nailed to a cross. And so Peter concludes, here's the main point of his sermon, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is the significance of Pentecost? What does it mean? That's what it means, that Jesus is the true King and Savior of the world. The King that this world rejected, the King that all of us are responsible for crucifying because of our rebellion and our sin, he's the one worthy of our worship and allegiance. The heart of the Spirit's activity at Pentecost is magnifying Jesus Christ. And that, I think, gives us a pretty good window into understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so often we're tempted to disconnect Jesus from the Spirit, to disconnect magnifying Christ from the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit from magnifying Christ. Uh, for instance, we might recognize our call to bear witness to Jesus, to declare his glory before others, but then we go about doing it in our own strength. We rely on our own cleverness or our own boldness or resolve, our own creative tactics or intelligent arguments, forgetting that apart from the Spirit's indwelling power in us and apart from His regenerating presence in those who hear, our gospel words will fall on deaf ears. You cannot disconnect gospel witness from the Holy Spirit without actually compromising the mission of gospel witness. We are utterly dependent on Him. And, and that's true not just for bearing witness, that's true for for loving Jesus, for obeying Jesus, for following Jesus. You could put it like this. If your pursuit of Jesus and passion for the gospel doesn't result in a deeper appreciation for and dependence on the Holy Spirit, you're doing it wrong. We need the Holy Spirit in our magnification of Christ. But on the other side... We might focus all our attention on spiritual circumstances or curiosities or miraculous manifestations or pursuing a, a certain experience of the Spirit's power, forgetting that the Spirit's primary ministry is magnifying Christ. That's what Jesus told us in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority. 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when we disconnect the Spirit, the Spirit's power from the magnification of Christ, we actually compromise the Spirit's ministry, his mission. So again, we can think of it this way. If your passion for and pursuit of the Holy Spirit doesn't result in greater affection for and attention to Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You can't separate the two. J.I. Packer summarizes it like this. The distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is to so mediate Christ's presence to believers, the personal presence of the risen, reigning Savior in and with the Christian in the church. He makes the presence of Jesus real to us here. Scripture shows that since Pentecost, this essentially is what the Spirit is doing all of the time as He empowers, enables, purges, and leads generation after generation of sinners to face the reality of God. And he does it in order that Christ may be known, loved, trusted, honored, and praised, which is the Spirit's aim and purpose throughout, as it is the aim and purpose of God the Father too. This is what, in the last analysis, the Spirit's new covenant ministry is all about. Magnifying Christ. And and that's the exact result we see coming out of Pentecost. When you look at How did the people respond to what they saw and heard? Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So so the same spirit who makes Jesus real to us, the same spirit who uh, gives power to their witness, who was just poured out on the church, he also is convicting the hearers of sin. They recognize their need for forgiveness. And the result of the Spirit's ministry here is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit points us to Jesus. And so Peter replies, you want to know what to do? Here's what you do. You repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Our proper response when we come to grips with our sin, with our need for a Savior, our need for forgiveness, our proper response is to seek refuge in the one that we've sinned against, to put our faith in Christ. And notice, again, The Spirit is both the means of faith and the reward of faith, the result of faith. It's God is the one who draws people to himself, and he does that by the Spirit, but everyone whom he draws receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's ministry shows up everywhere. And the faith that he gives us is marked by two things here, repentance and baptism. Uh, Repentance is, is kind of a big word. Uh, but it, it means simply turning away from sin, saying no to myself, to my rules, my way, my desires, 
and saying yes to Jesus. It's, it's turning the other direction. No longer being a slave to sin, but instead a servant of Christ. And baptism is the sign of our union with Christ. It's a public declaration that in Jesus, I have died to sin, I've died to myself, I've died to this world, I've been buried and now born again and raised with him in newness of life. That's our response to the gospel, repentance and faith. And that invitation is for everyone. The promise is for you and your children and everyone who is far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter how good your track record of following Jesus is or how dark your life has been stained by sin. We all need God's grace, and God's grace in Jesus is always enough. The invitation is for everyone, and I want us to hear that this morning, that this invitation is for you. If you, if you do not know Jesus, hear his call. Hear his call. See who he is, that he is both Lord and Christ, the true King and Savior, and that there's salvation in no other name under heaven. There is forgiveness and eternal life waiting for you. There's freedom from guilt and shame. There is, in, in place of guilt and shame, unconditional love and acceptance bought with the blood of Christ. That's the invitation. That's what Jesus accomplished for us, and that is Peter's appeal to the crowd that he's preaching. Uh, we, we only have a sliver of his sermon. He went on for a while, you know, so don't make any compare. Well, Peter could, you know, it only took five minutes to read that passage. He got it done in five minutes. It says in verse 40, with many other words, he exhorted them. <laughs> and, and, but what is his point? His point is save yourselves from this crooked generation. Turn to Jesus and be saved. That was his point. Believe in the gospel and find life in Christ. And so hear that invitation. And, it, and if you have heard that invitation and responded with faith, if you've repented of your sin and believed in Christ, then you should be baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, we should talk about that. Talk to me later. Um, but if, you, if, if Jesus is your king, take heart from this passage that there's nothing God is calling you to that he doesn't supply the strength to accomplish. He gives his church an impossible mission in this book and then pours out his spirit to make it happen. He is with us. He is with you by his grace to strengthen you for everything he calls you to. So take heart that the spirit is present with us. And this spirit is powerful. In just one sermon, the church grew from 120 people at the end of Acts chapter 1 to 3,000 at the end of chapter 2. And it wasn't because Peter was such a great preacher. It's because the Spirit of God was present in his preaching and present among those hearing. He was present in Pentecost to magnify Jesus Christ. 
the same Holy Spirit is with us right now, today. What could God do through us? What could God, is there any limit over what God might do through a people united in Christ and filled with his spirit? We have a purpose to bear witness to Christ. We have power in the Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to see how God gives us boldness when we look at chapter 4. God empowers his church by his spirit in order to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. May we believe that. May we believe that. May we proclaim that. May that impact everything we do so that like the Spirit, we are constantly shining a spotlight on Jesus. He's our king. Amen. He is our king. He is our treasure. May he be glorified through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the miracle that even the fact that we can open our mouths and our hearts to speak to you, that we know you hear us because of your spirit, because you are present. Lord, may we not take that for granted. May we grow in our affection for Jesus and our dependence on the spirit every day because you are real and you are beautiful, you are worthy. Lord, strengthen this congregation for your calling. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.